Hey, why don't you, uh, as you're being seated, why don't you open up in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. So we uh, started last week a brand new series. If you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to uh, get you a Bible. So we started this brand new series in the book of Daniel, and uh, we're going to continue it, going through it. Like I mentioned last week, if you were not here, I recommend checking out uh, the message online, um, checking, just listen to it as kind of the introduction to the entire book. Uh, one of the things that we mentioned is that as we go through the book, we're going to you know, change altitudes as we look at it. There's going to be moments where we're going to spend a little bit of time focusing on particular words or phrases or verses. Other times we're going to be looking at like chapters and just kind of flying at a 3,000 foot um, level above it to look at the main trajectory of it all. Um, today, we're not going to get really far. I'll just tell you that right now. Like we'll get a handful of verses. Um, but what I want to do is I want to read the entire chapter of chapter one. Um, it's, it's a whole story. It's in, I, I think it's intended to be looked at, first and foremost, is kind of a narrative, so that as we read the story, it's, it's a great story if you're unfamiliar with it, um, you're, you're going to get familiar with it today, because it's really just one of those amazing stories about heroism. In fact, if you want to kind of put it in a modern context, it's like uh, four young uh, Jewish people, dudes, young guys in their probably teen years, that have been like literally ripped out of their family, out of their home, out of everything that is common and familiar to them. And they find themselves standing up against the big, bad, militaristic world superpower machine and literally uh, decrying it, standing against it, opposing it, this big, massive, oppressive machine. They stand against it and they prevail. Like, what, what about that story does not, like, scream superhero movie, right? That, that's the stuff that is literally the narrative that's in every epic no- drama and narrative. And, and we, we see this happening in the story of, of Daniel. And what I want to look at as we look at the life of Daniel and his three friends is to really ask a, a bigger question. Um, how did they do that? What, what, what were the forces that were at play that helped shape them to be that type of person or to be, that type of, to be the type of people that are able to withstand these, these powerful forces, powerful culture shaping and shaming forces, but they withstand them. They stand a principle. They stand on the name of, of God and God's power to stand against these things. So that's the big question that I really want to be thinking about. So before we jump into that, I want to just read the entire chapter. So um, again, it's, it's kind of lengthy. It's about 20 plus verses. So just if, if, if you're not familiar with this, then just think of this as story time with uh, Pastor B. So uh, buckle up, get ready, get comfortable. I don't care. Kick your feet up on the chair in front of you. Uh, here we go. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, starts like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. That means literally destroyed it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels into the treasury of their lowercase g, God. So think pagan, temple, these Jewish artifacts are now being basically defiled in his pagan temple. Verse three, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So think uh, social engineering, like social programming. That's what's happening. 
So it's, it's a process to un, untrain them, God bless you, to untrain them in all their Jewish ways, all of their Jewish upbringing, to basically strip all of that from them, to give them a new identity, an identity that is consistent with, with Babylonian identity. So, so that's, that's what I want you to think. think um, that's what's happening. So verse 5, then the king, or the king assigned them a daily portion of food uh, that the king ate, and then wine that he had drunk, uh, and they were educated for three years. And then at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So a three-year deal going on. It says, among these people were four characters. And this becomes the focal point of these next few chapters, these uh, four guys. Uh, first of which is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, uh, and Azariah. They were all of the tribe of Judah. Now, if, again, if you're familiar with the story of uh, the Israelite people, you know that the tribe of Judah was an important tribe because there's a really, really important figure that we know from the, the Jesus story that came from the tribe of Judah. Um, it's obviously Jesus. So these guys are we're, we're getting, being given little bits of uh, detail and important information about who these guys are uh, that all play into the big, bigger picture of the storyline. Verse 7, it says, And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, and then called Daniel Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, Azariah he called Abednego. Now, uh, in two weeks, uh, next week I actually won't be here. We have a, a great special guest speaker I'm confident you guys are going to love. Um, I'll be on vacation. And uh, the following week we will get back into the story. And one of the things that we will look at the following week is really focusing on some of the, the, what these names mean and the, the types of circumstances that are happening behind the scenes. But then also how Babylon ultimately, as a machine, if you want to think of it that way, um, is, is attempting to shape and transform these guys. And one of the first things that they do is they change their names. Um, the idea behind that is not to just simply give them new names, but to give them new identities. So think, um, I, I know this is very, very far removed from you and I in today's culture, that this idea of like, who am I? What's my identity? is very, very unrelatable. Um, uh, hashtag uh, Instagram. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that this has been going on for thousands of years right now. Like, who am I? Uh, how should I identify? Who, who should I become? What type of a person should I become? And how should I live? Um, this, this goes all the way back into the very nature of, of humanity. Not just the Bible, but humanity itself is this bigger question. Who, who am I? What, what identity should I assume? And here's Babylon basically coming on the scene saying, hey, we'll give you an identity. We'll give you an identity that coalesces with our pagan deities. And again, that's where the names kind of fit in. Um, keep going on, verse 8. Then Daniel, this is the Probably the most important verse I wanted to simply focus on today. We'll come back to this. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he had drunk. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs then said to Daniel, I fear my lord, uh, the king, who assigned you the food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? So it's kind of an honest question. He's just like, look, I was assigned to oversee your like, re- deprogramming and then reprogramming. And if I like, modify that whole diet with you guys and you guys look pretty bad, the king's going to kill me. All right? It's not that I'm going to just like, lose my pension. I'm going to lose my head. Like, I don't, I, 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 it's not cool. And so he's basically making this statement, this um, uh, objection. Verse 11 says, but then Daniel said to him, to the steward, he says, whom the chief of the eunuch had signed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he's a tester servants. 
for 10 days. Just go ahead. Let us be given vegetable diet and to eat and drink water. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food uh, be observed by you and then deal with your servants accordingly as you see. So he listened to them in this matter. And he tested them for 10 days. Uh, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths that were there given the king's food. So the steward took away the food and the wine they were to drink, and then he gave them just vegetables, right? Vegans. Uh, verse 17, he says, And as these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all the visions and the dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, so again, at the end of this three- or four-year period, now they're primed and prepped and ready, and they've been given all the training and the education and the education that they needed. They're all ready to go. Now they're going to be brought in before the king. Verse 19, it says, And then Daniel spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In all the kingdom, therefore, they stood before the king. Just think about that. This is shocking. This is like, again, you're, you're supposed to, as you're reading the story, like being like, whoa, that's insane. How did that happen? Um, and you're supposed to, again, if you're familiar with the story, you're supposed to like gasp and be aware, wow, that happened because God is good. Somehow God is like in charge of this whole thing called creation. And somehow God is uh, involved in this entire process of what's happening here. And that's, that's going to become super self-evident as we continue. Verse 20 says, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king inquired of them, he found them to be ten times uh, better than all of the magicians, the pagans, the enchanters that were there in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So this is just the conclusion of the chapter. Basically say Daniel had a long career working for this guy Nebuchadnezzar, and there's no one like Daniel and his three buddies in this entire kingdom. Great. Good story? You guys like that? Good story. All right. So here's, here's the big question I really want to wrestle with and think about. So um, one of the things that we mentioned uh, last week, and I'll kind of go back to this just kind of in summary. It's kind of like a long extended sentence summary, but uh, there you go. Uh, the story of Daniel is ultimately intended to motivate faithfulness to God uh, despite exile in Babylon. It's what we see obviously in the initial chapters, probably how uh, early um, followers of Yahweh would have uh, received the book of Daniel. Um, and it ultimately offers hope that God will bring all nations under his rule. So I don't know how you think or what you think about the circumstances that are happening in our world today, how discouraged you are, how optimistic you are, how pessimistic you are, how cynical you are, how apathetic you become, I don't know. But there's plenty of material constantly on CNN or Fox News, take, take your pick, um, that is discouraging, frustrating, infuriating, so on and so forth. You get the idea. Um, but we are, we're being told by the book of Daniel that we live, there's another story going on right now. It's a story that supersedes the predominant narrative of culture and society. And the story of Daniel tells us that in spite of living in the very belly of the machine that is intending to shape and reshape and manufacture and remanufacture our hearts to live according to its vision, that we have a God that rules above that. And is always at work, even in the midst of the darkness, that, that God has a remnant of faithful people that will be faithful to him, even when we may not be, even when the ball may be dropped by us. God is still doing stuff always behind the scene. So the question I want to ask, and we'll kind of segue into some of this, is, is how can one live faithfully before God in the midst of opposing and hostile occurrence without drifting 
into these two extremes, and we'll unpack these in just a moment. The extremes being separatism and or syncretism. So let me define what I mean by that. Because what the story of Daniel tells us is this fascinating, like, object lesson that Daniel doesn't, like, I mean, live in Babylon and be like, we're going to completely isolate ourselves and remove ourselves and go create our own, like, Jewish compound and Jewish music and Jewish radio station and Jewish bookstore and, you know, Jewish whatever. Like, Daniel's living in Babylon and somehow thriving, and yet at the same time rejecting the identity structure that's being forced upon him and living according to his Jewish identity. So the two extremes being um, separatism, which basically fearfully uh, isolating from culture. So if, if, if some of you maybe were brought up in Christian families that kind of had this mentality of everything out there should be shunned because it's really bad. And, and I would say... My early years as a father, this is definitely the paradigm that I, I kind of drifted towards. Um, and there's all sorts of things. I look back now, my, my kids laugh at me because we, we did stuff and, you know, we withheld stuff and prohibited them from stuff. And, you know, we've had to do a lot of repenting and growing and so on and so forth. But this idea of separatism basically says we're going to remove ourselves and separate ourselves from everything that larger culture and society at large is doing just because it's somehow tainted or bad or evil or wicked and we're not going to watch movies, and we're not going to go trick-or-treating, we're not going to watch Harry or listen to Harry Potter, because that's wicked and evil, you know, God forbid you become a sorcerer, and so there's all these, like, incredibly fear-based ideas to say we're going we're gonna to do all of these things to avoid society and culture at large, because somehow there's this deep, deep fear of becoming tainted by the wickedness and evil. Now, that fear is, is there, there's, there is some founding of that fear. I don't, I don't want to in any way minimize that. But the other extreme is to drift into what we would call syncretism. So the idea is that we become uncritically conforming to culture. In other words, we just allow culture at large to shape us. We imbibe, we drink in, we uncritically watch movies and listen to the narratives that the movies are shoving down our throats. And we don't even think about it. We just simply imbibe it and let it shape us. And it, now, please, understand... We live in a culture and society at large that has an agenda. There's a focus. There's a vi- let, me, let me try to put it as as I can. Um, let me ask, put it in the question. Do Republicans have a vision for flourishing in America? Of course they do. That's a worldview. Do Democrats and progressives have a vision for flourishing in America? And again, I'm not trying to make political statements here. I'm just asking a simple question. Of course they do. It's a vision for what flourishing in, in life to the fullest, looks like. And the question is, does God have a vision for what life and flourishing looks like? And do all these things going to happily coexist together? No. But the question is, is what, what are you going to let shape you? This is exactly what happened with Daniel, is that, that he looked at Babylon's vision and hope for the future and says, okay, there's certain things I can affirm. There's certain things I can let slide. There's certain, certain things I can allow to just be a part of in the heart of this Babylonian beastly machine uh, that's shaping, that's attempting to shape me, um, and yet at the same time I could withstand other certain things that push it too far. So what I would suggest, there is a balance or a third way that does not kind of lean towards separatism and doesn't lean towards secretism. That's just kind of the third way. So here's, here's a question that I would kind of ask you to think about. In San Luis Obispo or on the Central Coast at large, 
uh, which category would you suggest that we, in general, are in danger of living towards? Uh, separatism is the Central Coast made up of a bunch of people that are more wired, more prone to removing themselves from culture at large, churning their own butter, doing their own homeschooling, uh, completely uh, becoming anger, full of anger towards the culture at large, or towards syncretism. In other words, becoming like culture, doing what culture does, enjoying the things that culture does to the same extent that people that are far from God enjoy it. Which, which one? Syncretism? I say it again? I think syncretism. I think you're right. So you've got to pause and think about that. Where are you? Are you just constantly, in an unbridled fashion, letting the culture shape how you think about life? Um, and this is kind of the challenge that we look at with Daniel. Um, and I would even say this has been a challenge of, of Jews throughout history. So if you guys have ever seen that, that movie, Fiddle on the Roof, this kind of came to me and I was talking with someone in between the services, that that movie, Fiddle on the Roof, is, is exactly this in, in play. If you're familiar with the story, uh, it's, it's the story of Jews that are living basically in exile, far from their home. It's called the Diaspora. They're living, I don't, I don't know, does anybody know what country they live in? Is it like Latvia or something like that? Does anybody know? Has anybody ever seen Fiddle on the Roof? Okay, good, good. You guys are leaving me up here hanging. It's not really cool. So um, what, what, what country do they live in? Okay, maybe Russia? I don't know. Okay, maybe it's Russia. Let's just say, for example, it's Russia. So here they are, far from home. But the big main issue is, like, how can you maintain your Jewish identity in a culture that does not value or doesn't even think or even care about your Jewish identity? So the image of a fiddler on a roof is, is really apropos because here you are on a, on a roof trying to play a fiddle. So the question is, are you going to fall into separatism or syncretism? Get the image? It takes skill. This is Daniel. Daniel somehow was able, by God's power, to maintain this fidelity to God in the midst of the very heart of the machine that was anti-Christ, anti-God. Okay? So what I want to begin to do now is just I want to focus on that one phrase, that verse that I said I want to look at, which is in verse 8. It's that little passage where it says, And Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. And uh, first of all, I want to just look at the word res uh, resolved and what exactly does that mean. And then I want to kind of look at some passages of how this word plays into the larger storyline. And then I want to just look at a couple examples of, of really asking the question, how did Daniel get this result? Like, where did that come from? Was Daniel, like, was, was this, like, a process of nature, like, or nurture? Like, where did Daniel get this result? Now, again, mind you, Daniel's hundreds, if not, you know, 1, 1,500 miles away from home. And it's not just uh, geographically removed from, quote-unquote, home. Uh, the very home that he was removed from forcibly was literally destroyed. The very temple that he would have grown up going to was gone. The very sacrificial system that he would have been accustomed to no longer exists. The very leaders that would have, like, showed him the way of the Torah probably are all dead. His mom and dad, there's no mention of that, which is very likely that he probably never talked to his mom and dad or any siblings ever again for the rest of his life. So if anybody is going to be prone towards syncretism, it's whom? It's the 18-year-old that leaves mom and dad and their fundamentalism and goes to college and becomes a party addict. This is Daniel. He could have done that. But he doesn't. Somehow he stays faithful to Yahweh in a very far remote territory. And I, and I want to try to address the question, how and why that happened. So with that, let's jump in and take a look at the word resolve and make some observations about this. 
So uh, next slide, yeah, here we go. Uh, this word that's uh, in Hebrew that gets used here, I'm not even trying to pronounce it because there's a variety of ways to pronounce it. I don't want to sound silly. So, um, but I want to give you a little bit of a definition of how I think this word kind of plays into the overall storyline of the Bible. I think the idea of uh, resolve that gets translated. How many other of you guys have different translations that don't say resolve? Any, any other translations? Daniel did what? Anybody? Purpose in his heart, okay, purpose. Any, any other variations of that? No, you purpose, resolve, anything else? No? Determine, okay, good, good, there we go. The rest of you guys are just you're leaving me up here hanging again to that whole thing we talked about earlier. But it's cool, I still love you. Um, so resolve, determine, purpose. So those are the big ideas that I, I want to really focus on. Um, what, is, what does that mean, to determine, resolve, or purpose in one's heart? Um, I think really the idea is this. It's, it's a determined action that involves somebody actively doing something um, that ultimately leads to a particularly desired result. So that's kind of where we would get the idea of determined. Now, here's some ways in which that particular word gets used in the Old Testament. So Genesis chapter 2, it's actually used of God. It says, and the Lord, God, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man. So that phrase, there he put man, is literally just that same Hebrew word. It's the idea that God determined an action, and his action, his desired result was ultimately that man, humanity, would live in this paradise, this garden, but it ends up, obviously, as you know the rest of the story, the man kind of rejects that and turns his own way, um, but God's aim, God's resolve, God's resolve, if you want to put it that way, what did God determine in his heart? Well, God determined in his heart, his, his real desire was that mankind would flourish in this garden. Uh, secondly, we skip on down to the book of Exodus, which if you're familiar with the story there, uh, children of Israel are, are in another form of exile, they're in Egypt, and they are being oppressed by, again, another uh, world militaristic superpower um, called Pharaoh, and he's oppressing and destroying the people of Israel. They cry out, God responds, God enters in, and here's what God says. The Lord then set a time, saying, tomorrow uh, the Lord will do this thing. So that phrase, set a time, literally is the exact same word, resolve. God resolved, and what was the outcome? Well, it tells us the outcome was that the very next day, the very same thing that God resolved happened. Like, this is the power of resolving something, apparently, especially if you're Yahweh. Uh, Exodus chapter 40, so Moses set up the tabernacle. Here's another interesting usage or phrase by which this word uh, takes some shape, and this might help you to think about this in another context. Uh, listen to what happens. So Moses sets up this tabernacle. Uh, he laid its bases, and he set up its frames. So I'm not sure what you think about when you think of tabernacle. Think of very, very large tent. So imagine you're going to Plastic Creek, and you got your, uh, you got your, your, your family member's tent, and you're going to go out there and set up the tent because you're going to camp over the weekend, all right? Um, and somebody has to set up the frame. And then after the frame is set up, then you put the canvas or the whatever it is over that. And this is the idea, the exact same word. Set up the frame, which is another way of using the exact same word, resolve. So you get, you get a little bit of a flavor, the idea of how important this particular phrase is. It's, it's not just something that's flimsy. It involves something of a purpose, of determination. This is what was going on with Daniel. He resolved in his heart um, is the fullness of the phrase. So the resolve is also coupled with this, another word in the book of Daniel where it says he resolved in his heart. The Hebrew word that's used there is the word lev. Um, and this, so this phrase resolved in heart is an important phrase. And this leads me to the last one I want to focus on. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, this is another really important passage. And here, God is basically saying to his people, he says, here's what I want you to do with regard to my law, the Torah. Uh, he says, uh, you shall therefore 
lay up these words of mine in your heart. So this is literally God, almost word for word, the exact same phrase that's found in the book of Daniel. Again, when you read the Bible, you should sometimes read some of these phrases as like hyperlinks. They take you back someplace. So whatever it is that Daniel is doing is directly related to what is being asked of Daniel and God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 11. God is saying here, a purpose in your heart to do something in this particular context is, uh, and in your soul that you are to bind the Torah, the words of God, um, as a sign on your hand, as they shall be uh, frontlets between your eyes. If you're ever familiar with those things called phylacteries, like the big boxes, they, they literally would do this in those little phylacteries. We're going to be going to Israel in 2020, and one of the things that you'll see sometimes are Jews walking around with these big boxes on their forehead. You're like, what's that? Like inside that box is a little Torah scroll. And it was a way of basically saying, we will literally bind uh, the Torah to our, to our foreheads and walk around with it. Um, next slide. We go on through this Deuteronomy passage. Verse 19, it says, and you shall teach them. So again, another little bit of instruction. What are you supposed to do with this Torah? You're supposed to set it up on your heart. Set your heart so it's ready to receive it, but you're also supposed to teach it, communicate it to the next generation. Um, teach it to your children. Talk about it when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking, by the way, uh, when you're on your way to Trader Joe's, when you're walking to the beach, when you lie down, when you're taking a nap, when you rise, when you do all these things. The idea is that you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. So this is the divine command to graffiti. Verse 21, and your days and your children shall be multiplied in the land uh, that the Lord your God swore to your fathers and to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. Next slide. As he goes on, he says in verse 22, for if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all of his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord your God will drive out these nations from before you and you will dispossess the nations that are greater and mightier and you can add more oppressive over you. Verse 24, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Then he goes on to say, here's, here's, here's the territory, here's the geography which it's gonna uh, occupy. He says, your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, from the river, uh, the river Euphrates, all the way to the Western Sea. So quick, quick question. Uh, out of geography, uh, what, what nation was actually situated on the Euphrates River? What? Babylon. Fascinating. So I, I'm, I'm certain Daniel would have been familiar with this passage. In his mind, he's thinking, ah, God, you will, you will give us your presence from even the Euphrates River all the way over to the Western Sea, which would have been what? Medi Mediterranean Sea. All right? Uh, verse 25. He says, and no one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land, and you shall tread as he promised. Is there any other passage beyond that? Is that it? I think that's it. Okay. So here's what I want you to think about with regard to this, is that this context or this passage is a, is a clear directive from God saying, I want you to have the sense of resolve of, or determination to keep my word. Uh, now, this kind of raises a little bit of a question, because... Um, Daniel probably would have been aware of the fact that, obviously, he's no longer in Israel. And, and God is saying, hey, if you do all these things, I will be with you. You'll, your enemies will dispossess the land, and I will keep you secure in your land. And that's a little bit of a contradiction, because where's Daniel? He's not in his land. He's in another land. He's dispossessed. He's in exile, which raises the question, what, what happened? Well, what happened was the people of Israel were not... Faithful. They did not have resolve in their heart to God to keep his ways. So he got Daniel 1,500, year, 1500 miles away geographically from the territory in which he was raised. 
saying, you know what, even though my forefathers, my family members, and my nation failed, um, I'm not going to. I'm going to resolve in my heart to even stand before the movers and shakers, the influencers of the day, a.k.a. Nebuchadnezzar and his crew, and I will stand against them, even if it's unpopular, even if it means, it spells death. That's what Daniel does. It's shocking, which, you know, what you see about Daniel's life, which is really fascinating, is that throughout his whole career, and again, this is kind of like spans many, 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 many years of Daniel's life. Um, if you're familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, I mean, this is like when Daniel's old, he kind of comes out of retirement, he's working for another crew, another, another king, another, like literally another world empire. They're like, hey, there's this crazy old guy. You know, I think of him by, at this point, kind of being like, um, I don't know, Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi, like status. You know, he's like in some cave somewhere, just like praying and seeking God. And then they're like, let's call the old man out of retirement because he knows how to, you know, interpret dreams and visions. And then he comes before, and he gets in trouble. And one of the things that ends up happening is Daniel just prays. Um, and you, you begin to realize that Daniel's life, has been one consistent, constant life of practice and holiness and determination to live for God, even in the midst of hostile environment. It's mind-blowing. Again, all of this begins when Daniel's probably, almost every scholar would agree on this, probably a teenager. So think 14 to maybe 18. That's Daniel chapter 1, 14 to 18. Imagine... Four guys, teenagers, 16 years old, right in the midst of like hormone overdrive, all right? Foreign land, beautiful women all around you, beautiful whatever all around you. Everything can be at your fingertips. And yet, what's on Daniel's mind, or I should even add what's on his heart, is fidelity to Yahweh. It's mind-blowing. There's no accountability. He doesn't have, like, you know, a small group to go to on Tuesday night. He's not going to, like, synagogue on Saturday. He's not, like, hanging with the church bros. He's not listening to Christian music. There's no K-Wave, K-Life, no, like, Bible bookstores. There's no, like, blue-letter Bible to download. There's nothing by which he can feed his soul. But there's something about his heart that has been wired to live faithfully to God. So here, here's some thoughts that I was just kind of uh, write, writing down um, on here. That regular godly responses, because that's what we see here, is that Daniel is, is trying to respond in a godly action or God-like type of a form. That regular godly responses, and I, and I would distinguish this from just like periodic moments of, of success, right? All of us are capable of periodic moments of success in our Christian walk, right? All of us. You get tempted by something, you're like, I'm not going to do that. That's awesome. Those should be celebrated. But that's different than regularly being a type of person that lives in a God-like manner and fashion. Would you agree? But I think most of us would say we want to be the type of people that when no one's watching me, when it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm on Instagram, I'm not going to be like drifting into porn. That would be the type of person that when no one else is around me, I'm not simply just drifting into something that just dishonors and defiles myself and dishonors God and the very name and identity to which I've been called to. I want to be the type of person that when no one else is around, when there's no support network to build me up, to hold me up, or no phone, no people to call on a phone or no one to text to kind of say, hey, could you pray for me in this moment, that I can be that type of person that is regularly making choices and decisions that 
that honor God. And that only happens as you become a type of person that lives like that. It's not cynical. It's not apathetic. That's not full of like, I've been there, done that. that dude, that's cynicism. And I think that is part of the spirit of the age. That's like killing the fervency of the church. Maybe even killing the fervency of what God wants to do in your life. What I'm suggesting, be the fiddler on the roof. Don't give way to the separatism or even the syncretism that is part of part and parcel of the culture and the world at large in which we live in. Live in a way that's distinct. That's what we see with Daniel. So regular godly responses are formed, ready for this, by regular godly habits. This is the idea of like training and disciplines. Um, we see that Daniel, at least one of those habits in Daniel's life, was regular prayer and regular Bible reading. Like we know that even at one of the passages in the Old Test or the Book of Daniel, we, we'll get to it at some point, where it says, that, "Well, I was just chilling, reading the, the the story of Jeremiah." Like, wait, what? On your own time, you're just chilling, reading the Bible? Like, you're not watching Game of Thrones? Like, you're living Game of Thrones? Like, you're in the midst of Game of Thrones, right? But you, you're not, you're not, you're not. This, you don't call that entertainment? Daniel's like, I'm not going to put anything wicked before my eyes. He's praying. He's got this habit where he just devotes his heart to God. These are habits that are part of this regular rhythm of life so that when the moments of crisis and chaos arise, he's, he's acting out of instinct. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. When you first started driving a car, you were regularly, frequently looking down, making sure that one foot was not pushing the wrong brake or the wrong you know, pedal, or that you're always like looking, making sure you know, where your hands are at. You're overwhelmed with the process. Over time, you train yourself to be the type of person that doesn't need to be overwhelmed with the process. You just are able to enjoy the reality. Does that make sense? That, that's what Daniel was. He was the type of guy that had been trained so much in the process of what it means to say yes to God, what it means to abide and obey God and to honor God with his life and so that we remove everything away from him. Daniel will always be that type of person that will be godly because his practices help shape him, form him to be the type of person. So last thing is that regular godly habits are actually set in place or in motion by these three things. Instruction, meaning someone, someone informed him, someone told him, here's, here's what I would suggest doing, um, the instruction, and then motivation, who's in Daniel's heart, like he, he, I, he identified this as something that he wants to do, and then ultimately action. So in other words, you can talk all you want about being generous. Dude, if you never give money away, you are not a generous person. You're just someone that likes to talk about generosity. That's different. You know that, right? At some point, you gotta like say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start doing it. I might not have much, I might not have a lot of time, but at some point I'm going to become the type of person that if all I got is five minutes in the morning, I might get up a little bit earlier before that and just and spend some time in quietness before God and just pray, reading scripture, letting things, these things shape and form my heart. You guys, we live in a culture that is not benign when it comes to the vision it's trying to shape us into. You know that, right? I like to think of our culture as being overly evangelistic. It has a message that it's constantly trying to shape us into. And it oftentimes it looks at followers of Jesus and say, you guys are so outspoken about the message. Look, the, like all society is wired that way to shout the message at us. And when you fail to live up to that message, to shame you because you failed, right? 
That's different than the gospel, by the way. And if you've ever been in a Christian culture that basically shames you for not being a type of person, then I would say that, that is a, a, cult, a Christian culture that's gone adrift. That's not what Jesus ever did. He never shames people back into, like, right living. What he does, he just presents himself for the goodness and the greatness of what he is and reminds you of who you are and your connection, your identity and relation to him. And then he begins to invite you to live according to this identity. That was Daniel, living according to his identity. Which is what? This is, this is where it gets really good. I'm, I'm, I promise I, I can go on rabbit trails here for a long time, but I'm not. I'm going to wrap it up with this thought. Because um, this brings me back to the big question. Where did Daniel get this from? Like, where did Daniel get this vision to be the type of person that lives within this identity of being an Exodus people? Meaning, I'm, I'm a Jew. And as a Jew, Yahweh's my king. And as Yahweh being my king, there are certain things I can, like, live and be a part of in the Babylonian you know, culture that's, that's destructive. But there's other certain things that I cannot do to defile myself. Why? Because I belong to Yahweh. I know who I am, I think Daniel would have said. Where did Daniel get this from? This is where the story gets, like, mind-blowing. So months ago when I was just kind of digging into this and, like, like trying to figure out, like, storyline and, and like, uh, like, scenarios of, of how the timeline maps and how this all kind of plays out, um, I was just reading in the book of Chronicles and, uh, you know, just casual reading because that's just what you do. How great is the book of Chronicles? Actually, it's not. It's, like, really depressing. It's long. It's, like, not really fun. But the last three chapters of Chronicles are, are mind-blowing. In Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 30, uh, chapter 35, we're introduced to the story about a guy by the name of uh, Josiah. Um, and Josiah, if you're familiar with him and his life, it's fantastic. There's a, there's a lot written about this guy, Josiah, and there's good reason for that because Josiah like literally led the people of Israel into this moment of revival. Um, Josiah was a king. He's, his, his story is incredible. I'll just give you some snapshots. Um, Josiah becomes king at age eight. Eight got eight years old, right? So you think that's, that's pretty young to rule, but apparently for him, it wasn't. So at some point in his development, by the time he becomes a teen, uh, he's starting to look at the landscape of Israel and he's like, dude, this place is messed up. It's all given over to paganism, and my dad was a horrible dude, and he did bad stuff, and he allowed all sorts of evil and wickedness to pervade in the land of Israel, and we've got to make some changes. So Josiah makes some radical changes. He removes all these, like, high places, which are, like, imagine, like, pagan temples and places of worship and idolatry and uh, injustice that was going on. He begins to make some major uh, revisions about how society at large worked. And then at some point, he's like, you know, one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to figure out how to clean out the temple. Right? The temple was this place where heaven and earth meet, where sacrifices were made. It was this place that Solomon had built that was mind-blowingly amazing. But it had fallen into disrepair. And the sacrificial system kind of got put on hold, and all the ceremonies and, and even like Passover had never been celebrated for like generations. So imagine living in a society where you ask someone, like, hey, when was the last time we celebrated Passover? Like, I don't, I don't even know what, what is Passover. Like, dude, you're Jewish people. You're Exodus people. You were brought as a family. Your, your, your heritage came from. Imagine being a society here in America where we're like, what happened on 4th of July? Oh, yeah, 4th of July, it's just about fireworks. We're kind of soon becoming that, by the way. Like, we don't even know. Like, like what's 4th what's of July all about? I, just, I think it's about, like, like, corn dogs and hot dogs and getting drunk. And, like, nope, that's not what it's about. But, right, there you go. We, we, have, we have modern degrees of ignorance, even in our own culture, where we forget the storyline of what we came from. But that's what happened in Israel. They forgot the storyline. Therefore, they forgot their identity. 
and what happens is Josiah brings back all these reversions, uh, revisions. And what ends up happening is that while the temple is being cleaned out, someone discovers this scroll, right? I imagine it's like filled with cobwebs. And someone brings it out. They're like, we should read this. And they read it. It's the book of the law, which probably would have contained that passage of Deuteronomy. And as they're reading it, they're like, oh, my gosh, we've not done this. Oh, my gosh, we've failed in all these areas. And oh, my gosh, God's inviting us as a people to become who he has rescued us to be. And all heaven breaks loose upon Israel. And literally a revival, a renewal that has never happened in the land of Israel begins to break forth. And here's what's really crazy, is that in that renewal, in that revival, uh, the Passover begins to be reinstituted. It hadn't been done for many, many years. Um, the sacrifices begin to be reinstituted. It's literally a renewal and a revival that Israel has never seen before. And within the midst of that revival, I, I, I'm certain that probably Daniel's parents got swept up in this revival. And they began to let the word of God reshape and change their heart. And they became the Deuteronomy type of people that said, we need to pass these things under our children. So God said, we want to live according to what God said. And at a young age, imagine Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, you know, age four, age five. Who knows how old they were? They were, probably would have been around that age. Beginning to implement family prayer, scripture reading, habits that shape them to be the type of people. So that when calamity falls upon them and they're taken away in exile, these habits have been instilled upon them, within them. They become the type of people that when calamity takes place and they're forced to decide, they choose the way of Yahweh over the way of Babylon. Mind-blowing. You know, I mean, you can think about so many different things to consider about that. I mean, number one is like parents, don't ever, ever, ever belittle the significance that your role is in the lives of your kids. Like, honestly, I, I talk to parents all the time, and, and even, for example, like going to church, I realize everybody on the Central Coast is so ridiculously busy. Like, I don't have time. We don't go to church very often. We don't institute prayer in our family. I, I get it. We're so busy. But, I mean, again, I honestly think that many of us, we are losing a generation because we are not intentionally pouring into our, our, our kids' lives. But I'll tell you what, there is a segment of society that is incredibly intentional about pouring into your kids' lives. And it's full of decay and rottenness. And it will not lead to life and hope and wholeness. It will lead to the very opposite of destruction because it is the powers of this age that are at work, that Jesus has come to defeat and to thwart and overthrow and to provide an alternate way of life beyond that. But parents, guys, imagine the role that you play. Take gathering with your family seriously. Take ingraining in them coming to church important. If it's not up to snuff what you think it could be or should be, then play active roles in their lives. Be a part of that formation because they will be formed, you will be formed, you will be shaped. The big question is, what is forming and shaping us right now? And that's what we see with the story of Daniel. Lastly, I want to finish with this thought because what we see in this story is I, I, I want for us to just to consider what happens is in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, we're told basically this story about Josiah. It says, then the king, Josiah, that is, he summons all the elders of the people of Judah Jerusalem, and the king went into the temple of the Lord, and 
with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with him, the priests and the Levites and the people, the greatest to the least. And then the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Then the king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. And he pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all of his commandments, laws, and decrees with all of his heart and soul. He promised to obey the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. And one of the amazing things about the story of Josiah is Josiah uses his, his leadership authority not to oppress people, but to bring them to the freeing God, to remind them of who they are. They belong to this God that gives life. I think if you look at the life of Daniel, the reason why he was able to determine in his heart was because he had a firm understanding of who he was. I mean, identity. Like, we live in this culture today that we, we don't know who we are. We, we've, we've lost our collective sense of who we are. And I think even more so in our transient society and culture that's constantly trying to break ranks with anything traditional, anything in the past, because of whatever reason. We have created a society where we don't know who we are. So we're feverishly looking to social media, looking to Hollywood, looking to any form of celebrity or influencer somehow, tell me who am I? And we're constantly coming up empty and broken and ruined and lost. And what the story of Daniel tells us is something entirely different. This is a guy that knows who he is. He belongs to Yahweh. He's part of the Exodus people that have been freed. And therefore, he's got the poise within the context of knowing who he is to stand up against the most powerful force on the planet and to say, I won't, I won't do that. And later you get to see that what, what degree he would be willing to say that. Even to the point of death, he would be like, look, I, I, I got to hold my guns because I know who I am. And you know what? The God that I serve, he, he may deliver me. He, he may not. I, I, I may come out the other end. I may, you know, in the, den, in the lion's den. I mean, you know, I might wake up in the morning and just, you know, a set of bones is going to be there. But whatever. I'm not going to deny my, my God because I know who I am. And I know who he is. And he's faithful because he treasured in his heart, determined in his heart, now, the story of Daniel, I mean, again, we, we, could, we could look at the story of Daniel and be like, oh, my gosh, what an amazing example to follow because um, Daniel's incredible and yada, yada. But at the end of the day, what, I think the story of Daniel, I, I think we would be remiss and kind of short-sighted to just simply look at Daniel and be like, let's be like Daniel. Like, like, but the story of Daniel tells us that there's a trajectory ultimately in the story of the Bible itself that takes us ultimately to the one who had determined in his heart um, to do something out of obedience to God, even though it would cost him everything. And we see the story of Jesus, that there's this story that Jesus is doing miracles and uh, having incredible like, success. I mean, he's created like this mega church movement, right? And people are following him all over the place. They're wanting to get his autograph and hang out with him and eat food that he creates and all this stuff, get healed by him. And then Jesus realizes that there's this undercurrent of darkness that is out to kill him because they see Jesus as a threat, right? And Jesus is constantly faced. What path do I take? The path of popular opinion or the path of the Father? In the garden, it comes to a head where Jesus is faced. Like, it would be far more convenient for me to not take the path of the Father. <laughs> he says, Father, if it would be your will, let this cup pass for me. And just prior to that, in the book of Luke, we're told this little segment. It says, Jesus, as he's walking down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, 
he realizes what his fate is later that week. He realizes that going into Jerusalem literally means not just death, but the most brutal form of death you can imagine, crucifixion, which is not just simply like death, it's uh, torture, it's humiliation, it's dehumanization. And it says that Jesus set his face, which is another way you can interpret that, is Jesus determined in his heart to go to Jerusalem. Because what Jerusalem to Jesus embodied was the full obedience to the way of Yahweh. And why? Why, why did Jesus do that? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we're told in the book of John, 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That so determined is the heart of the Father to, to rescue this world that has been under the subjugation of evil and wickedness and destructive currents that he comes into this world to rescue, but he knows the only way to rescue it is to allow the evil to overcome him. Not by being evil, not by making choices that are in collusion with evil, but to allow the consequences of evil to do to him what they do to us every day. To dehumanize, to destroy, to alienate, to remove any sense of worth and value and identity to its fullest. And this is what Jesus does on our behalf And it all goes back to this very sense of determination that Jesus says, I do this out of faithfulness to the Father. But Jesus' faithfulness to the Father becomes the very means by which you and I can be rescued. This is what we see with Daniel. But we see it in the most fullest degree in Jesus. So I don't know where you're at, what types of choices that you're facing, or how you are even wrestling with today's life choices or decisions. But the question I want to leave you with is, what type of a person are you becoming? Not who are you today. What type of person are you becoming? Because right now, some of us, the choices that we're making today are shaping us into something. question is, is two years from now, three years from now, where will that take you? Will you be more cynical than you are today? Will you be more apathetic than you are today? Will you be more compromising then than you are today? What type of determination is there in your heart and understanding of your identity in the context of God that says, I'm going to step into all that God has because I know that he loves me. I know that he washes me and cleanses me. So my invitation to all of us is to just pause and to reflect upon this. What I want to do to this moment right now as we end and conclude, something different. Is a lot of times we'll end with a song. I, don't want to, I don't, actually don't want to do that today. What I want to do right now is I just want to take a moment uh, for something that oftentimes doesn't get done very regularly in the modern Western church, which is just silence. We're oftentimes about making noise and commotion and song, and all that's good, all that has its place. But I think sometimes there's something powerful about just simply being silent before God and, and being intentional within that silence. And what I want to invite you into is to just, in silence, ask the Holy Spirit, what are areas in my life right now that I'm, I'm colluding with forces that are predominant within today's culture that are making me cynical, that are making me apathetic, that are making me tempted so much so that I'm willing to compromise these values and these ideas? Where are those areas in my life right now where maybe I have such a, a loss of who I am, my identity, that I'm so desperate to find an identity, I'm willing to just betray myself, even the values that I once had, just to get 
someone to show attention to me. And I want to pray for us that we be the type of people that would turn our hearts to this God that loves us incredibly. And that we would turn to him. And from that new identity, or renewed understanding of that identity, we'd be the type of people that could resolve in our hearts that we're not going to eat the king's food, we're not going to defile ourselves because we know the depth of the love of God so much so that that alone satisfies us more than the food that's offered at the table, even of a king slash modern influencer. So how about we all stand? And uh, just, I just want for us to be silent. Now, again, for some of us, that might be deeply awkward. I get it. We live in a culture that just is constantly wanting to keep some form of noise going on. So we're not going to have like the sound of like waves crashing in the background, which you fall asleep, or white noise. None of that. Just the silence. So between you and God, just ask the Holy Spirit, where are those areas right now that you're wanting me to repent from, to find hope in a renewed sense in you? And then as soon as I'm done, I'm going to pray. And then uh, to, to close things up, if... Um, um, as I dismiss you, you're more than welcome to come to the front to pray. We'll have some communion available for you that will be served um, to just remember to whom we belong. And we have some people that will be up at the front that would love to just pray for you as well and just speak in your lives and listen to the voice of God for you. So let's just quiet our hearts and be silent before the Lord and listen to him. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just reveal, show forth, God, those areas in our hearts and our lives that maybe we have, we have given over to other authorities, other powers, other influences, other voices, other narratives that have just left us feeling shallow and broken and ruined and naked and deeply, deeply ashamed. I just invite you, Lord, to just take our hearts, no matter where they're at, no matter how bruised they may feel, no matter how vulnerable they might be, no matter how weak or vulnerable, just really messed up or ruined they might feel. And God, remake us, reshape us. Help us to see the depth of love that you have for us in Jesus, that on the cross he bore every bit of shame and wickedness that we face for us so that we can be a different type of person. And so, God, from that, I pray that you would help us to live into our identity, not according to the alternate narratives that are constantly just at play or maybe influencing us, maybe unbeknowingly, but to live into the new identity that you've called us to be, to be resurrection people. Thank you that you give hope and life Transformation. I pray for my brothers and sisters here right now. Be for them hope, life, strength as you refresh and renew their understanding of who they are in you. God, as we leave now, I pray that you would empower us to live this way, to live into all that you have for us, to be so quick to ask those questions. How do you want to guide us or lead us in these moments, in these days? in which we live in, to shine brightly for you. So we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name.
We all said, amen.